Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Book Riot's new subscription service, Tailored Book Recommendations, or... TBR. TBR is for readers of all stripes. If you've been dreaming of a stitch fix for books, well, now it's here. Tell TBR about your reading preferences and what you're looking for, and then just sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans that let you receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations only by email, so there's an option for every budget and plans start at just $15. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 298. We're recording on Thursday, January 31st, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Officially can't say it's, um, you can't say Happy New Year anymore. No. Starting tomorrow. And I still January... feel like it's the beginning of the year, but it's not. Uh, I feel like whatever. January is the cruelest month. Like it, it lasts no. approximately seven years. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and now it's it almost over. But then there's also the like, oh my God, we're already a twelfth of the way through mm-hmm. the year feeling. And February is short. So you roll through that and suddenly you wake up in March you and you're like, what, right. what happened? All of a sudden yeah. you're on spring break. Yeah. And, and you're then dead. you're a and then quarter you die. of you're the way through the year. Years yes, old, this, and you're looking back. It all ends in death. What happened? <laughs> I hope you're all well, thawed we, out out there. I know most of you were oh, freezing man. your tuchuses off, um, and uh, I hope you all made it through okay. I was worried about you all very much. So. Yeah, by the time a lot this of news. Show lands. I mean, the other thing is the news is ramping up. Um, it's true. Not all in ways I'm super thrilled about. I have to. No. <laughs> yeah, we do have a couple heroes of the week this week, and oh, I think true. we're gonna we're gonna need both of them <laughs> to get us through. We need a, a, a turkey to hero ratio of like <laughs> one to nine. Yes. I don't know what's appropriate, so something like that. I wish okay, that the do. world worked that way. Yeah, right. <laughs> let's do a sponsor. Ready? You ready? I'm ready. Mm-hmm. I'm ready. This week's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. We like to read. We're constantly seeking to learn new things and gain a better understanding of the world around us. You should be like us, A. And if you are, you should check out The Great Courses Plus. It's a streaming service that offers unlimited access to thousands of topics, and not just topics, but lectures on those topics by renowned experts who are passionate about what they teach. And they teach things like cooking, science, history, psychology. You know what things are. I don't have to tell you what things are, but you can learn about any and all of them with The Great Courses Plus. You can watch or listen entirely on your schedule from anywhere. We've been learning so much from the course fundamentals of photography look this is one of those things like right like balance well no one balances their checkbook anymore compound interest it's a big part of your life even if you don't know it they should teach it in high school here's the other thing we all do that no one ever teaches anything about it is how to take pictures we're taking pictures all the time taking pictures of your dog taking picture of your of your cat of your kid of what you're eating if you're like rebecca it's the same tree every day but <laughs> We don't, no one told us how to take a good photo. We just point and shoot like animals. 
but you might want to learn to be a little bit better. And one of the courses that Great Courses Plus has is the Fundamentals of Photography taught by a National Geographic photographer. And if you don't know, these folks can take a picture. Teaches great tips and tricks for taking better photos, like how to use lighting or framing, no matter what type of camera you have. And yes, that includes like if your if your mom or aunt or you uses their iPad to take pictures, even those cameras you can take better pictures. There's so much to discover on the Great Course. Plus, we know you will love it. To get you started, you can get a free trial with unlimited access to learn about anything. Sign up today. Try the Great Courses Plus for free only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. That's a seven-day free unlimited trial. Sorry, free seven-day trial that includes unlimited access. An unlimited trial, I don't think that business model works very well. That, that's, they, they can't do that. So thanks to them for sponsoring this show. I need to sign up for this so that my daily tree pictures can be more exciting. That's right. You can, they can look exactly the same, but slightly better than they were before. There we go. <laughs> New editing or different angles or something. Yeah, I have just go. accepted. Like, it's the same tree every day for a reason. I'm going to take the same picture every day, but maybe I could, <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe I could mix it you up. Could do. Yeah, you could bring your little light lighting kits, you know, get the tree. Get <laughs> the neighbors won't side. have any questions yeah. at all. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I don't know. Um, on the scale Rebecca, of like weird. Have you, yes. have you, uh, have you lost it? Rebecca, Rebecca, come back. <laughs> On the scale of like weird things my neighbors have probably observed no, me do yeah. over the last 12 years, taking well-lit pictures of trees is probably actually pretty low. Pretty low. All right. Well, we get, a, you know, I thought we were going to be done with this particular person in this story. I have to say I did um, too. that this is coming back. So Jay Asher, who, as we, if you remember, uh, is long, I guess it's been about a year or so. Um, Jay Asher, really in that first wave of yeah. Me Too things happening in publishing, was accused of sexual misconduct by, well, there's this is part of the issue, by persons, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And the, the publishing world came down hard on Jay Asher. Um, he got dropped by his agency. His speaking engagements and book signings evaporated, and even some bookstores removed his novels from their shelves. Now, he had denied the allegations at the time, and he has now filed a lawsuit for defamation against the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators and the group's executive director, Lynn Oliver, saying that when they dropped him from their, I guess, let's see, what was it that they actually dropped him from? Uh, well, they made derogatory comments. So this is a New York Times piece. I'll put a link in the show notes mm-hmm. here. Um, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, they revoked um, an invitation yeah. to him to speak at an SCBWI event. Um, mm-hmm. And that, like, further down in this, further down in this um New York Times piece, some of the emails that Ms. Oliver received at SCBWI were from women who said that Asher used the group's conferences to prey on women sexually and then threatened them to intimidate them into silence. So those are the allegations um, that made people feel unsafe attending SCBWI events. Mm -hmm. Um, 
he did acknowledge having affairs with women yep. that he met at these conferences. He maintains that they were consensual, um, that he never threatened any of the women or offered to help them professionally. And um, in the complaint, he contends that an individual upset over his success was behind the emails to um, to SCBWI. Um, there were seven anonymous women who contacted mm-hmm. Oliver um, there to make allegations. So, I mean, this is um, it's a big deal that he dismisses yeah. as entirely without merit. Um, so the claim. Under- so the yeah. go ahead. Sorry, Rebecca, I would say I understand why he's upset. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, so the basically there's a there's a link in this New York Times article. I'll probably link it out separately too that has the um the press release from the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators saying he's been expelled from um actually it's an AP report about the press release expelled mm-hmm. from a prominent writers organization because of allegations about sexual harassment. They said he was found to have violated the society's harassment code. So I guess if this the the thing being contested is was that reasonable that mm-hmm. ex, you know to to kick him out because they have they determined um, in a way that it's not criminal right so it's not a beyond the reasonable doubt this is a civil suit they right. violated the society's harassment code um, and he's saying that a it wasn't reasonable and b that there was harm done mm-hmm. to him because of their well, expulsion. Yes, and also... That's the word I'm looking for, expulsion. Yeah, and I think also that there's no proof, you know, Mm. which is um, a tricky part of all of these cases. Um, But SCBWI can investigate, presumably receiving seven anonymous complaints about the same person was compelling to them. We don't know what the details of those complaints were. And so does, uh, does the fact that maybe someone can't produce emails or photos of him yeah. doing something is that enough to you know satisfy that perhaps this is defamatory um i think this is a bad i have to say in general especially when you have like seven people reporting things mm. this is a bad look um and there's some unpacking not, not that i'm surprised <laughs> at this point about yeah. um how men respond to these allegations but there's some interesting unpacking to do like one of the statements that asher has made and he declined to be interviewed for the new york times piece is i do not condone harassment of any sort and have spent my entire career standing up for its victims so these statements were devastating like it may very well be true that he spent <coughs> his career standing up for victims of harassment mm. i I don't know, but that doesn't mean he could not also have done it. You know, plenty. One of the things that we've seen in the Me Too movement is that plenty of the guys who have been accused of these things have uh, actively branded themselves as feminist. Louis C.K., chief among them, Um, that this is a a relatively common pattern that Jay Asher could be part of is... um, I'm I'm a feminist. I stand up for women. Therefore, I could also never do anything to harm them. Or I therefore you should believe that I never would have done anything to harm them. And that just doesn't hold any water. Um, it will be interesting to see how this goes. Yeah, it's it's super. F- I don't know if we've seen a trial like this because this is a way a lot of the Me Too stuff has happened, right? Mm-hmm. Anonymous complaints. Um, complaints is not right. Accusations, reports, reports accusations. What, uh, of misconduct um, of varying degrees of severity from stuff that's just 
gross to criminal and, you know, that, the, the, the whole range. But anonymous, and then action taken on the, those reports. Mm-hmm. Is, is that legal uh, under current law is a question I am not equipped to answer. Because in my understanding is something for defamatory, it has to be false, and maybe even knowingly false, right? Like, if mm. you just get something wrong, is it defamation? Um, if someone lied to you and you repeated that and it was gone public, is that defamation? I'm just not sure what the standard is. You, you have to, to crawl out from under. Um, it says he's seeking a jury trial. Um, I think discovery would be interesting. Mm-hmm. I think... Is this a shakedown? Is, does this society have a bunch of money that he's trying to get? Like, what's the point here? Like, what is he trying to do is also interesting to me uh, in a sort of um, car crash kind of a way. Because right. Streisand effect is a soundless Streisand effect alarm. I don't know. Like, maybe the way we were comes wafting in um, through the clouds whenever the Streisand effect is in effect. But this is one where, like, he doesn't look any better today. If he's trying to rehabilitate his career, this is not the way to do it. By suing a children's book yeah, organization, you know you can't right. You can't. I don't think sue your way back into anyone's <laughs> good graces. No, <laughs> like, no, no. You, know, you and I, you and I have talked. I think privately about wishing that the court of rightness could be a thing. Yes. That like their litigiousness being what it is, um, it would be nice in some cases just to have a court of rightness about did this thing occur or not and that then the court would rule and that everything Mm -hmm. would then be restored based on what was right um but if that's what jay asher is going for here like this that doesn't exist the court of rightness is not a thing Mm -hmm. um and his reputation is beyond repair i think he is i I think he is correct in that assessment it also can't go without mention that i think part of the reason that the response to this was as swift as it is, is that he is a children's author, Yeah, you know, that um, these allegations made against men who write primarily for adult audiences are taken seriously, but there's an extra level or layer of threat implied when you're dealing with someone who um, is alleged to have harassed uh, to alleged to have engaged in sexual harassment, and then you're letting them interact with a bunch of teenage or child age fans. Um, and that's not to say that men who like have affairs at conferences are also men who would abuse children. But it's a level of like mm, judgment, perhaps <laughs> that, that mm-hmm. uh, a lack of judgment if it's present there that you don't uh, that you don't want to be exposing kids to. And people do have stronger feelings about that. So it's like I think it's got to be remarked upon that it's not like he's suing. It wasn't like it was just the ALA and he's going after a, a big organization. It's, um, I think, an important detail that this is tied to children's and young adult publishing. Mm-hmm. So I'm just doing, you know, as one does Googling, libel is a malicious false statement in written media, broadcast or otherwise published words. So does it have to be malicious and false? Is this malicious? So, I mean, I don't know. So well, but the, libel uh, and defamation is- are different. <laughs> Right, so but isn't I, libel just a kind of defamation that includes slander? Yeah, like slander right, is spoken so, and right. libel so like, is... My, well, now we're just way out of our depths, right. Jeff. But but, I, but, <laughs> but, 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 I'll try to bring myself back. The idea is that there's a combination of maliciousness and falsity that has, has to be, at least from what I can tell. Email yeah, us. I think, podcast at yeah, I think for libel, it this. has to be malicious. But for defamation, it just has to be you published something untrue, whether you right. knew it was untrue or not. So... 
Yeah, if, I guess I, if, I might, yeah, I guess. If a court can rule that either they knew it was untrue or they didn't have enough evidence that it was true. But for then something, to, if you can't prove something, do you know it's like, what's the burden of proof? Like if they yeah, were told by seven works. people, right? does Jay Asher have to prove it's false? Well, and could Or does he have to prove that they couldn't prove it was false, that they couldn't prove it was true? Does that make mm-hmm. sense? That distinction? Right. I don't, I'm unclear about that. And I think that SCBWI is also very likely doing some math about, um, mm-hmm. you know, what if we, or I would guess, if I had to make this kind of decision, an element that would that I would take into consideration, given seven reports, is what if I don't take action about these seven reports, and then there's an eighth one that I could have prevented because I had known about the first seven? Are you then responsible if that eighth person comes forward and complains or makes allegations or goes to the police about something, depending on the severity of the actions? And then it comes back like, well, you knew seven people had reported it to you. So that I think this is just a sticky situation to be in for um, for any organization. I don't know how to guess about how it will go. Well, and riddle me this, Batgirl, um... The, the fount of all, all of this particular issue, I mean, it, the behavior is part of it, but in terms of the legal problem here is, in a lot of these instances, there is no evidence, right? Right. Like, there's, no, there's nothing to, f- unless you were recording it or someone saw it, you know, saying something terrible to someone, you can pass that along to someone else, and it's hard to know what to do with it, because you might believe it, but that... Mm-hmm. That's different than being able to prove it, which is different than being able to, I have enough to defend myself in a court of law right. against a libel claim is really, right. There's either, really hard. Like, how do you show evidence in a whisper network is yeah. functionally the question here. Or like, I, I have heard of cases where in a trial you know, people's text messages to their friends come up like, well, did you report that you did you report this incident to the police? No, but I texted my best friend about it right after here are the screenshots of those texts. And um, and then a judge or a jury has to determine if they believe that, which also then opens it up to all kinds of like, well, you could be orchestrating the whole thing. You know, how do we know that you were texting about something that actually happened and not just sending text so that you'd have something to hold up as evidence it's a big like this is one of the most difficult parts of sorting out the me too Mm. stuff is how do we believe victims and survivors when they come forward with experiences um because the the whole innocent until proven guilty thing is a thing that exists in the court of law but not before that like in order to get to an investigation in order to get into court we have to believe that at least something might have happened to the person who's reporting it and, and go into like, we believe what you're saying or we believe it might be true. How do we get there? But there's often not evidence. And and it is the other side of the coin to some decisions we haven't loved about certain people getting to keep right. certain things. And I'm just mm-hmm. going to be vague for the moment because <laughs> I don't want to get into it. But we did mention, maybe we didn't hit it hard enough. And this is brings us back to mind is unless a certain organization can prove something to someone who has a specific position, they may be in jeopardy of mm-hmm. getting sued for a lot a of lot. money. And this could be, there's a difference between um, joyfully retaining someone, firing someone, and holding your nose and retaining mm-hmm. someone. And I, I could do a better job of recognizing that complexity because we can believe accusers all we want. You know, that's, an individual can do that. 
an organization acting materially on someone has a different standard than my belief, I think, at this point, legally. Now, I don't know if that's how it should be mm -hmm. forever, but that's where we are. In this case, I think, you know, I don't know if, who, what has evidence. I don't know if this is just a shakedown and he wants the, the organization to settle so that they don't have to go to court and do all that stuff. Like, I don't know. But if you take it as read that Asher and his legal team are believing what they say and they would like to mm -hmm. exonerate him or whatever... I don't know how this was gonna this how this would go down. Um, I'm sorry to see this. I'm sorry to see this for the the on behalf of the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. I can't imagine it's a, uh, you know, a a, a, a a behemoth of financial resources um, yeah. that could defend themselves against something like this. I think my takeaway from this is I want to be a little more forgiving's not the right word but understanding of the complexity of an organization taking action when they see something this, like this happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I really, I really am worried about myself being, it's easy for me to say, um, but I don't know if I'm the society of children's book writers knowing if you knew this was going to happen, then what would you do? I mean, I, I would take my hat and all, all my headwear off to you saying, you know what? Damn the torpedoes. But if it's an existential threat, I don't know what you do. I don't know what it's reasonable to ask a society like this to do in this particular circumstance. I don't want them to go away. I also don't want them to look the other way. So I don't know what's in the middle. Yeah, I really don't. I think you're right onto something there that a lot of why this is tricky has to do with where the law is versus where we would like to yes. see the law go about how to, or at least how organizations can have space to handle reports like this because mm -hmm. the SCBWI does say that the claims against Jay Asher and against David Diaz um, were investigated and as a result, they are no longer members of SCBWI and will no longer be appearing at events like that is in that statement that they made to the Associated Press. So SCBWI states that they did conduct an yeah. investigation and Jay Asher, I guess, is disputing either how that investigation was conducted or right. what was found in it. Um, it says that like his statement that was made through a spokeswoman back in April of 2017, which by gosh, we've been doing this for almost two uh. years now, um, was that it was many years of harassment from a group of authors with whom he had consensual relationships that ended with some hurt feelings when they learned about each other. So the, at the best, he was having affairs with multiple people who mm -hmm. his contention is the different women he was having affairs with found out about each other and then they got mad at him, um, which could happen. Um Sure. But presumably discovery on that would also be really telling. Like if you're having affairs with multiple people for years, there are probably texts and emails and damning evidence about the nature of those relationships. Mm -hmm. So this, what, I don't your, think nobody's going to come out looking good here. No. Like nobody comes out looking good. I, I guess maybe we talked about this when we talked, um, when publishers have started, implementing or discussing sort of morality clauses in publishing mm, contracts mm -hmm. or like if we if something along these lines comes up we have a we have a mechanisms to get out of this this is probably the lesson here is for organizations that might have something like this happen yeah. is do we have a mechanism for disassociating disassociating ourselves from someone that doesn't expose us to a lawsuit how can we build right, something like, like this is scbwi rewriting their bylaws now yeah 
assuming they're going to have any use for bylaws uh, in a year. But like, is it? Did they have to make a public statement? Like, what if they just quietly said, "Asher, here's what we're going to do. You're not going to come anymore, and we're not going to make a stink about it." Mm-hmm. Now. Maybe we wouldn't have liked them because don't we want them to come out and say, I certainly would have said something like that. You know, the organizations all should be denouncing him. But do we want the appearance of right action more than we want the people to act rightly and to be able to continue <laughs> doing business? <laughs> I think that that's, that's well, true. Um, I, I don't think- know. I think there are multiple kinds of right action here, though. And one right action is remove, if you have evidence, you remove this person. Or if you have a reason to think they're a threat to your community, you remove the person from your organization or your events or whatever. Mm -hmm. And if you have to do it quiet as it's kept in order to CYA, then okay, you hold your nose and you do it that way. But another part of right action here and one of the real drivers of momentum in Me Too is that right action also involves warning future potential victims um, and preventing future harm. So you might have to hold your nose and say, dude, you're out, but we won't make a deal of it if you don't make a deal of it. But then you're not doing the full degree of yeah. the work right. and which isn't to say, like i understand the legal complications behind being able to do or not do that step of talking about it publicly um mm-hmm. but i think we want to be moving toward a place that acknowledges that part of fixing this problem is public acknowledgement of who the victimizers are yeah i guess if you have the resources people. i mean it's going to be a case-by-case basis if you have the resources to say um, you know what, we're going to call it like we see it and do so publicly to do the all the right we can. And if we get sued, we get sued. That would be wonderful. I'm Maybe I don't know about this. I'm mm-hmm. just saying, if you're in the other situation of like, we want to do the right thing, but we see people get sued. And if we get sued for a $20 million lawsuit and we have to settle for eight, we're done. Right. I don't think I can reasonably ask that because they don't have the legal cover. They don't have the legal cover to write actly. And we're, we're talking around the same thing. You already said mm-hmm. this already. Yeah. A lot of organizations don't seem to have the legal cover to be able to act in the way that they want to um, in this particular moment. And will the law change? Is this the nature of evidence in how our legal system works? Like our legal system mm-hmm. works where we'd rather have 10 people go free than one guilty man um, be put in jail. That's how it's set up with a reasonable doubt and so on and so forth. So this is something we know in a lot of different parts of the law. And maybe we have to, we have to get used to that in this part of the world um, where our, you know, or, or have some other secondary, you know, develop secondary mechanisms to deal with this mm-hmm. that circumvents legal exposure, um, but then also can signal to other people. I don't, did you have this on the list? I don't know. It's related to this where Google mm. has refused to um, give up the names of the people who contributed to the um, expletive media men list as part of that lawsuit. <laughs> I didn't have it on the agenda, but I did yeah. see that this week. I thought that, so that's a case of Google, I think, saying, no, we're not going to give it to you. Sue us. Mm-hmm. And they can. They got billions of dollars. Yep. You know, those with power to act should. Um, and those who would go at wink out of existence if they don't do the best you can, I think I'll be all right with that for the time being. I guess that's where yeah, I'm trying I to think- land myself. One of the sort of middle 
term actions that can happen now that would be positive, I think, for a lot of changes for organizations and companies and universities and whatever. Take some inventory of Mm. what's in your contracts. What is, you know, what is in your contracts? What's in your bylaws? Do you have a way to get rid of someone that you believe poses a threat to your community or your Mm -hmm. students or whoever it is? Um, And if you don't, like find a way to get that in so that you have right. legal cover. Um, and this is a thing like I'm on the board of a nonprofit in Richmond that as Me Too was breaking, we had to have that discussion, which I think every every like every organization should be having that conversation because living in the world that we live in, it's mm-hmm. just a, we have to accept that we could in no matter what you do or what organization you're in, you could receive notice of allegations against someone who's a part of your organization and you need to have a way to respond to those and to protect yourself and your community. All right, let's go on to other people doing things we're really not super oh, happy about. Um, yeah. A continuing story about Drag Queen Story Hour. This is called Story Time. And um, this is, let's see, where are we? Houston. Uh, we are in Houston, Houston Texas. Um, a protester who had pre- already been banned from the library trespassed during a Drag Queen Story Time and he was armed. He had to be disarmed and escorted out by police. Um, the library requested police intervention when he would not leave the building. Um, concealed weapon, great job, Texas. Concealed weapon, super safe for mm-hmm. marginalized people. Um, he's a conservative radio show host for Raging Elephants Radio. A radio. Uh, he had been banned. The reason he was banned from the library was for filming children and has been known to cause disturbances. Um, I watched, there is a video embedded in this link mm. from Outsmart Magazine. Um, I watched it so you don't have to. <laughs> um, oh, he filmed his encounter with the security guards and the librarian and is either willfully obtuse or like thinks that he's smarter than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And those two things reside together pretty frequently <laughs> in my experience. But he uh, he's wearing a Make America Great Again hat. He is claiming that he's a taxpayer, and so therefore he can't be banned from the library. Um, I pay your salary. The, the <laughs> no, last protest of the, no, Jeff, the categorically wrong. He says, he actually says in the video, don't you work for me. He's yeah, trying to right. get the librarian to speak to him. Don't you work for me? I'm a I'm Weirdly, taxpayer. not the people being protected. He doesn't work for the, right. the they don't work for the people in the library yeah. being protected. And they work for the this library. Guy. Right. The library has policies that prevent filming of any kind in the library, um, which he has violated in the past. Um, the YouTube video that he took of his interaction also has the highlight arrested for being a Christian. Um, and he claims to be, he, he's there, he claims to be there as a member of the media. <laughs> so I don't recommend spending a couple of minutes of your life watching that video. But I was, I'm so interested in how Drag Queen Storytime has become the flashpoint for these things right now. Like, yeah, I think it's really interesting too. I also think we talked about Drag Queen Story Hour before and people being protest. And I think we gave, we, we gave our wholehearted, um, uh, support to drag queen yes. story but i think the thing i forget because of who i am and what i get how i get to move through the world 
is that is not a safe space for drag queens. As, as this video is like, this is mm-hmm. an act of subversion on their part. It's a, it's a rebellion. It's a radical act. It's a subversive act that it happens to take place in a public building. And they found a way um, to, to, to not perform, but to like take action of a kind of a very real kind. And this is showing that it matters. Like yes. that you're getting this guy mad and with his stupid red hat and his stupid Reagan cutout in the background like this matters in a way that I think is hard to I think it's it's hard for people like me I will say to understand how of a radical act it really is because it happens mm. at this very primal level of the quote unquote culture war that is not about policy really it's not about you know something else it's really about a baseline level of prejudice that is trying to be um challenged it is being yeah challenged. it's yeah it's a group of people and in this case the group is the drag queens insisting on their right to exist in a public space yes Uh, and just how vehemently some people respond in opposition Mm -hmm. to that Um, as he was being led to the parking garage uh, James Green, the offender here, said, we have a bunch of homosexuals that are molesting children. They're doing Ugh. it with your help. Which is Can't you defame just... that guy? Can't you sue that guy? I'm serious. If you're yeah. the performer or the mm-hmm. reader, I, you know, if you're the, if yeah. you're, uh, the well, woman... Well, like that man, right there yeah. is defamation, being called I, I a child like, molester. I mean, because they're call, so are they calling the librarians or the drag queens? Like, who are they saying this about? Like, uh, what... Anyway, I'm, yeah. I'm head up about it, but um, I don't think they give the name of who was doing the reading, um, which I'm sorry, this I'm not happy that maybe, maybe for protection, maybe they didn't mm-hmm. want to, um, but I would like to give props to the 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 drag queen yeah. reading um, that particular yeah. day. There's so. also um, not a mention of the librarian's yes. name well in this case, um, but good job, Houston Public Library employees yeah. for enforcing your policies for keeping public spaces safe by having armed protesters who have been banned from the premises and then come back removed and james green may your efforts fail may your efforts fail i should also say this article i'll link to in the show notes is by is from outsmart which is houston's Mm -hmm. lgbtq magazine i'm going to give them more than the benefit of the doubt that they know what they're doing about who whose name and they include in withhold so um whatever disappointment i had is not there consider it fully retracted and even supported um uh, because i can imagine they they've they've had experience figuring out what's the best use of naming individuals that get involved and mm-hmm. get harassed and threatened and endangered by, by these jerks. Um, this Would is, you like to I, okay. hear okay. about our you last, go? you want to do our yeah, last let's do another sponsor. sponsor. Let's do another we're, sponsor. We're, we're getting into the stuff today. Yep. Yeah, um, our last sponsor this week is the plotters by Unsu Kim. And this is like if Wes Anderson wrote a thriller it's an ensemble cast of eccentric characters. They come together to form what's really a unique crime novel. Liberty talked about it on all the books, and she was like, it is just wacky and wonderful. It's set in an alternate Seoul, Korea, where assassins gather in a headquarters that's known as the library. The story follows mm-hmm. a character named... Mm-hmm, right, right, now you're into it. Mm-hmm. The story follows a character named Racing. He's a lifelong hitman whose every move is dictated by an anonymous group called the Plotters. P-L-O-T-T-E-R-S, you know, like 
books have plots. And then one day, Racing steps out of line on a job and finds himself embroiled in a deadly scheme that's totally off book. Uh, he was called, uh, Unsu Kim, the author was called the Korean Henning Menkel. The Plotters is a stylish and sarcastic thriller. It will also appeal to literary readers. The antagonists are a, tr- a trio of quirky sisters. There's a cross-eyed librarian, a chronic knitter, and a convenience store clerk. The bad guys burn bodies in a place they call the Bear's Pet Crematorium, and Racing's mentor is named Old Raccoon. Along with other quirky elements, the hitman has two cats that are named Desk and Lampshade. <laughs> Just a lot of fun there. That's The Plotters by Unsu Kim. It's out now from Doubleday. You can find it wherever books are sold, or we will have a link in the show notes. I clicked on one of our own ads for this this morning for that book. Oh, did I was looking you? At, I think it was a sponsor of Deals of the Day. And I was looking, I was like, I want to know more about this book. It's got a great mm-hmm. cover. And I was just like, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm interested. So there well, you go. Well, you know, check that out. we had you at the library. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's fiction. So I don't know. I'm That's not ready true. to cross back over. I'm happy <laughs> over here on this side. Uh, let's do news of like the, the more straight ahead publishing sort. I, I can't tell if this is a nothing burger or not, which probably means it is because mm-hmm. um, so the man Booker Prize um, lost its funding, which was 1.6 million pounds per year, I guess, from the sponsor, which was um, the Man Group, which I think needs a rebranding. Like, <laughs> can, like it's, I, I think, and for a lot of reasons, I think some of which are listening to your laughter right now. I think. Do you, are you are you saying men need a rebranding, Jeff? Well, I I just think I just think this is not a great brand in general, and especially right now. But also because it never. This is one of the things I learned a while ago, but you know I forget. Like I thought the Man Booker was just the name of the prize, and that I didn't, didn't even register. It doesn't register for most people. That's a sponsor. Like yeah, it's the Coca Cola Booker Prize. People get it. But like right. the man Booker sounds like it's somebody's name. Or yeah, that's just like, I didn't know it's it was confusing. a sponsor. Yeah, this was news yeah. to me. Yeah, um, apparently their relations have been strained for some time, hmm. um, with a company suggest- source suggesting they felt underappreciated. This is an article on the BBC. Um, so there you go. I, I would say probably I would like the Booker Prize to have funding. I think maybe the man group is right to get out. I'm just yeah. uh, just where I am. I don't know. Like, <laughs> just from what my own experience of like understanding the branding and what's happening there, it's not working for that. That something. Yeah. I don't know what. You know, I'm really the most interested in this bit about them feeling underappreciated. Yeah. Like, presumably you don't sponsor a thing for 1.6 million pounds in order to get a feeling back. I don't know. Maybe you do. But it's branding mm. that is like name recognition. I guess they could be not getting quite like what they might be if it were the coca-cola book prize at least everyone would be like oh right coca-cola it's a brand as you pointed out but maybe most people have no idea that this man booker prize is supposed to essentially be like sponsored placement for the man group um Mm -hmm. maybe they're not getting their money's worth of exposure but this we feel underappreciated if that's really what happened there that's just interesting to me like what 
how, what is being appreciated supposed to look like in this case? And, I don't know. It looks questions. like there might be some tea in this cabinet because someone, I think so. um, an author just, you know, critiqued that the man group was sponsoring the Booker Prize saying, this is not the sort of people who should be sponsoring literary prizes. They're the kind of people literary prizes ought to be criticizing. I didn't feel happy about <laughs> accepting money from them. And mm. then the man group's chief executive helpfully got into the mix. And uh-huh. I think, I don't even know what the, it's a hedge fund. Hedge funds, I would say, you know, I've seen the big short. I would say maybe it could be ambivalent about a hedge fund. You know, what do we know what they're doing? Uh, I don't know. On the other hand, where else is where else are you going to get two million bucks to run the thing? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Like it's private public partnerships. Um, for my it- for for content purposes, I'd love an American company to come sponsor it just to Ooh. make everyone mad. Because they don't like Americans over there with the the, the Walmart like Booker Prize. Oh, because Walmart's well, a book not, retailer. Jeff. They're not really a book retailer. Someone smarter <laughs> than me told me. Just gonna that would be good. Okay, so here, while. any any who? What would be a good brand? Uh, it has to be a company. We can't say, I don't know, uh, Red Cross. You know, it has to be a a, a, a capitalist. Uh, overlord of some mm-hmm. kind. Oh, and they have to... Okay, I don't know about overlord status, but I think Warby Parker should sponsor a book prize. The Warby Parker... The Warby Booker, Booker prize. prize. Warby Parker Booker Prize. That would be I was good. trying to think of like intellectual branded companies. Like Warby Parker, I mean, they sell glasses, which already have sort of intellectual connotations, but then they uh-huh. have literary... Stuff going they have on books. There too. They sell books in there. Like they do, right? Their, like, they do you know. sell books. Like that would make sense. Um, mm. hmm. It's a little tough. It is a little it's tough. A little you know, tough. I'm kind of supp- like Starbucks. I don't. I don't think of Starbucks as like rising to that well, level. Well, this is but- super highbrow. So I maybe go like Mercedes, like oh, one of those sure. like luxury mm-hmm. brands, because there is a you know the, the way Mercedes packages itself is like sitting around in, in, in rich mahogany uh, kind of a situation, which I think <laughs> or you like, could do um, well. Or like the Hermes Booker Prize. Yeah, that's even more... Ex- yeah, like maybe like Jaguar very... or Bentley, like a, an English luxury car company, something like Tesla. that. Tesla. <laughs> no problems with that. You know what really works is the Amazon Booker Prize. That would, no, one would, no one would be upset about that. Can you imagine? That would be an unbelievable Bezos troll. Unbelievable! They they wouldn't take it. I don't think they would take it. They couldn't. They wouldn't want to deal with it. Amazon has ever considered sponsoring something like this. Like I just want to imagine myself in as a fly on the wall of the imaginary like board meeting, where a bunch of Amazon people are trying to determine if they should try to sponsor. Like imagine that they try to sponsor like the National Book Award. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I, I'm not sure. I see too much like Amazon corporate sponsorship yeah, they, of things I don't to think my they knowledge. Do, but it would be yeah. super. I just want that conversation to have existed so I can imagine hearing right. it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So um, also, I would I would like both serious and um, jokey submissions for who would be mm. both the best and best slash worst um, uh, sponsors of the Man Booker Prize. You know, Better one, that, seem, than the man one that seems to have the scratch to do it now, Scribd. Oh, look at that transition. Yeah. I don't vamp for nothing here. Um, <laughs> we saw this came across The Verge. We haven't talked about Scribd in a minute. Um, they A press release spun into a piece on The Verge, basically, is um, Scribd announced that they have more than one million... Uh, wait, hold on. 
I just already caught myself in a close reading of this. Scribd <laughs> announced today that more than one million people have signed up for the service. Mm-hmm. What do I not like about that phrase, Rebecca? We don't know anything about how many of them have paid or are currently active users. There it is. I thought this said that I, my plain text reading was wrong. Um, I thought they were saying they had a million subscribers. They are not saying that. They are saying, I think, is it fair to say this is saying that one million people yeah. have at one point signed up for the service? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the headline is I'm sorry, Squid I Reading Service that. has surpassed one million subscribers. Oh. Right? Yeah. But the first line of the piece is announced today that more than one million people have signed up for the service. And in our half tinfoil hat, just, I think, appropriately skeptical reading of tech company press releases, I am with your interpretation here that what they're saying is that like in Scribd's lifetime existence, one million different users have subscribed. I don't know that they currently have yeah. one. And that's not the same thing as having one million subscribers. So down in the piece, it says, as of a year ago, the site boasted more than 700,000 subscribers. And the company says that reintroducing the unlimited plan has worked. It grew its subscriber numbers by 40% in the last year. And Scribd says that it has seen a 100% increase in the number of people listening to audiobooks. That is unequivocal in saying those are subscribers year over year. But I wonder, is that The Verge writing this? Are they mm-hmm. misinterpreting it? Like, well, what is the actual the, language coming out of Scribd here? Is it the yeah. first mention or is it this thing that's down? I, I don't know. Um, well, and also the as of a year ago, mm. the site boasted more than 700,000 subscribers could have been the same thing that as of this time last year, 700,000 people had been Scribd subscribers. Yeah, there, there's some confusion around there. Let's say for the moment that whatever the number is, it's up. You know, yes. I think we could say how much it's up or what exactly they're counting, but that it's up, that script is still a thing, that that's it's growing. They've brought back their unlimited plan, 100% increase in the people listening to audiobooks. You know, uh, slap, slap my face and call me Shirley. I, I'm surprised here that this is the story we're seeing, whatever they're counting, whatever beans are comparing to what beans. I'm surprised to see this. You don't have any additional yeah. thoughts. You're bored out of your mind about this. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> I'm a little bored with script, yeah, I have to say. I, um, I think I knew from like watching our insiders talk about still using it that there yeah. was still stuff going on there. I am surprised that 40% growth year over year is happening. I guess I am bored that's a, by... That's a big growth. Yeah, it is big growth. Like, I'm bored by a spun press release when the story that yeah. I want is, how did you get 40% growth in the last year? Mm-hmm. Not <laughs> broken that. down by country, it should say, you know, right. anything like that. If these were all Americans, they would tout that, just because we know how American subscriptions tend to be the gold standard just because of economies and, and standard of living and that kind of stuff. Right. And Scribd does have services that are unrelated to these like t- yeah. that are unrelated to the all you can eat model so i would want i want to know like of the 300,000 new people between last year and this year um how many of them are mm-hmm. audio how many of them are subscribing to these you know audiobook and ebook access things versus like using scribs just document services yeah I'm not sure. Um, my hot take coming out of this is a little bit, I got to connect some Legos here to talking about Wattpad last time mm. and our ongoing, um, I, I don't know, skeptical viewing from the sidelines of publishing being so happy about print doing well. Uh. My hot take is this, 
there are way more people reading ebooks than people understand. What do you think yes. about that hot take? I'm picking up what you're throwing down. Because Scribd is not showing up in those share of market that the American Association of Publishers is when they come down to mm-hmm. ebook sales. This is some other model. Everything being read on Wattpad doesn't show up on that. All right. self publishing doesn't show up on this. Overdrive, Libby, that doesn't show up in this in the same way. At least that's my understanding of how those breakdowns were 26 ebooks were 26% of the market. They might be in terms of sales, but if we're, are, are, what are we talking about here? If we're talking about publishing mm-hmm. culture, that's one thing. I'm thinking about reading culture, yeah. Kindle Unlimited. I yes. mean, self, there's, there's all these places that aren't showing up in the big number that the publishing industry likes to be all happy about, mm-hmm. that print is doing well. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's, that's my story. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> um, that, I'll put my headphone <laughs> mic on the ground on your way out. <laughs> I'm with you. I think that publishing likes this. Yay, print books yeah. are exceeding ebook sales. Everything's fine because print books are better um, kind of argument where it does like that. You're right. A sales behavior. But are we? But reading behavior is different than book buying mm-hmm. behavior. And more people read than buy books. So yes. do we care more about, I guess publishing's job is to care about people buying books and publishing makes more money if people buy print books than they do if people Mm buy ebooks so i get that story but the like everything's fine for readers because print books are doing better is not like i don't think those lines are actually connected to each other Um, if people are able to read more books in general because of scribbed and digital access on the whole like that's the story and i do think that a lot of reading behavior is driven by digital access especially these things like that you're calling out that don't show up on Mm -hmm. measures of book sales yeah i just i started i started like sort of making a little list of like where are all the places that people are reading ebooks that wouldn't necessarily show up at least to my understanding and those end of year numbers we get about how ebooks mm-hmm. are not a thing anymore, or like they're now twenty four percent rather than we thought they'd be eighty percent or whatever. It's like, well, what what's really being counted here? And I guess the the, the maybe the meta question for the intersection of publishing culture and reading culture is: is it good or nothing or bad that publishing itself doesn't seem to be on board with? this thing people are doing more than they're counting. Like, does it matter for pu- the health of publishing, capital P publishing, mm-hmm. that they're ignoring or sort of barely servicing um, these models as long as they chug along making their profits on hardcovers that you know sit on a shelf? Or is this a sign of the gathering storm in a way that they're not? They, they thought it would, be, it would show up in their bottom line on ebook sale unit sales, and it's not, but it's happening in all these sort of um, fringe ways I just don't know. I'm just wondering if it's, if yeah. reading's more popular than people think, and is that a blind spot to the publishing and sort of culture of publishing world mm-hmm. out there? I, I I have I wonder about that. I guess is what I'm. Yeah, to I, I think I do wonder about that. In general, I would wager reading is healthier. Like reading culture is healthier than book sales culture is mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, which is let's do. I'm fine with that. Is there anything else to say about that? No, maybe not. I was bored yeah. five minutes ago. Yeah, thanks. 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 Appreciate that. <laughs> Even my TED talk was too long. <laughs> Tell me about Hero. Let's hear about some heroes. So we got two heroes this week. The first is a nine-year-old girl from Maryland. Her name is 
Oh gosh, now her book cover is covered up in my piece. Her oh, name is no. Hallie. I've got it. Her name is Hallie okay. Amore Moore. And she has published a book of poetry called The Pages of Life. In it, she tackles politics, feminism, why there's not enough funding for education, like some social justice things. And on um, she was on a local Fox affiliate from Washington, D.C., we have a link in the show notes where you can watch her be interviewed talking about her upcoming book signing. It's four minutes long. She is a delight. Her parents are sitting there with her. They are just so like wonderfully and very well-deservedly proud of this little girl and her book of poetry. And it's just, you know, if, if you need like four minutes of feeling like the kids are all right, I highly recommend this to you. So congratulations, Hallie, on publishing your book of poetry. Mm-hmm. There's not there's not much text in this link. It is just a video to watch her on the local news. I do mm-hmm. recommend it. It is balm for the soul. And then also we've got a story about a bus driver in Arkansas uh, who her name is. Let's see. I'm looking to. Julie Callison. She's a special education teacher. And she added a bucket of books to her daily route to try to create a culture of reading on the school bus. The way it works is when the kids get on the bus, they can pick up to three books out of the bucket. After they read those, they share them with students around them. Then they put them back in the bucket on the way out the door. She has older students reading to younger students, younger students reading to older students. On Friday afternoons, they have a special guest reader, which is usually a high school or middle school student who comes from the back of the bus, like up to read Mm. to the younger kids. And they pick out a book and they sit on the front seat and they read it over the speaker to the whole bus. Oh, man. Right? Julie Callison, wear your cape. Congratulations. (laughs) Congratulations. <laughs> well, we've um, talked before about putting books where kids, you know, laundromats, yeah, dentist office, yes. barber shops, uh, people or kids are on the bus. Yes. They're it's like a captive a canonical audience. place kids are. She was cleaning out the books in her classroom one day to take them on vacation. She brought them with her on the bus ride home after school. On that ride, one of the students had too much energy, so she asked the girl's older brother to read to her from one of the books. Other kids noticed. They asked why they couldn't have a book to read as well. And the rest is history. (sighs) So good. Julie Callison, we salute you. Julie Callison, we salute you. I would ask this. There may be some nerdy kid in the back with motion sick problems. Not saying this was ever me, but just be aware that for some of us, reading a book in a moving vehicle is, um, well, it doesn't end well for anyone involved. Let's put it that way. Let's hope they have an opt out policy. (laughs) Yeah, an opt out policy. I'm sure. I'm not. Julie sounds like she's a wise and generous hearted soul. She's not going to force anybody to read who says, you know, I might yoach all over this uh, (laughs) yellow transport vehicle if if I have to read uh, the Berenstein Bears right now. Well, you really, this took a turn. Look, I've had some moments reading in the car. As a reader who took long car trips to Colorado, Mm -hmm. regular every year, it was a real, you know, it was, it was a real, uh, don't you you wish you could, don't touch, don't touch the burner situation. Don't you wish you could like go back in time and give little eight-year-old Jeff an Audible subscription? <laughs> I'm going to cry thinking about that. What would I have listened to it on, though? Your, your also, Walkman. You'd also have it to give, been... Yeah, my Walkman. I would have downloaded it onto my Walkman because the internet totally existed. <laughs> Columbia House, but for audiobooks. Was yeah, that ever a thing? 
Did Book of the Month have audiobooks like on CDs or tapes ever? I don't know. Subscription oh. audiobooks? Did it exist before digital? You, well, you could have. Those of you out here are, are way younger than I am, and certainly Rebecca uh, may not have ever seen what a physical audiobook really looked like when it was a tape. Oh, boy. You get, you get the stand on audio on a tape, <laughs> you're looking at a semi truck. We used to do audiobooks on tape on family trips when yeah. I was a kid. Like not every time, but it did they took up a lot of space in the old minivan. <laughs> <laughs> it it had true. wood paneling. Like this we did the thing. I don't I don't think there was any help in me in uh nineteen ninety, no. you know, to, to to make that any better. Maybe um, we can reading. just time travel back to young Jeff and be like, It's gonna get better. There's gonna be it turned books out, you, you don't yeah, have I to was read. fine, you know. <laughs> Suck it up, old Jeff. You're tr- everything turned out just A-OK for you. You're Let's gonna be go back okay. to Julie Callison's shining moment. Yes. I know it should be about me, but let's, for the sake of Julie, make it not about me. For you. So we got two heroes this week, and I feel good about that. We needed them. We did. Thank you, heroes. You'll be with us this week. Uh, show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. Shoot an email, podcast at bookriot.com. We would like to know about, well... Um, I know I'm in trouble asking this for you lawyers out there who know things about defamation that might be relevant. Don't lawyer explain me about this, but like help me understand this. Um, I will look and give you credit for that. I would also like to hear about both serious and shady ideas for the Booker Prize's um, next sponsor. Uh, I think that's it. We'll talk to you guys next time. Rebecca, well done as always. Thank you. You too, Jeff. Have a good week.